Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of doing another special episode with multiple guests. Here I talked to Dr. Jesse Poganik and Dr. Madi Mokri, both work at Harvard with Vadim Gladyshev, and Madi Mokri also works with Michael Snyder at Stanford. In this episode, we talked about biomarkers, specifically how they could replace expensive studies, the promise of omics and similar deep data sets for age prediction. We talked about problems with the word aging clock, and we also speculated about rejuvenation and criticized barriers that slow down our research. Hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did. Also, I hope we can work together to make this field great and tear down those bureaucratic barriers that slow down progress so we can help patients to live longer and better. Welcome to the Aging Science Podcast today. We have a bit of a special issue today. So the last one was about the ARDD conference where we had some live interviews. And today the occasion is that you're involved in this Aging Biomarkers Symposium. And there is of course an upcoming conference that you want to talk about. And I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully after that, everyone listening will be motivated to join your conference. And maybe we can just briefly start, what are you doing and how led this to an interest in biomarkers? Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for your kind invitation. My name is Madi Mokri. I'm a joint research fellow at Harvard Medical School and Stanford Medical School. And uh, I work on epigenetics aging mostly. And uh, more recently got into how we can translate uh, these biomarkers for clinical applications. My interest in biomarkers was I was an informatics uh, professor and I was building models for hospitals to predict their, uh, their outcomes, their patients' outcomes. And aging was always the most predictive factors in, in various settings. And I became more and more interested to understanding aging and measuring at a molecular level. And that's why I left my uh, faculty position to join these great labs that, uh, that study uh, biomarkers of aging. What about you, Jesse? Yeah, so um, I, I work with Madi at Harvard Medical School. I'm an instructor in medicine there. Um, my background is a little different. Um, I actually come from more of a chemical biology background. I was studying redox biology before I got into aging. And uh, of course, we all know the free radical theory of aging has fallen by the wayside, but you know the connections between the fields persist. And so that's how I got into this uh, field. Um, it was just always on the horizon as something really interesting that I wanted to work on. And so when I finished my PhD, I joined Vadim Gladyshev's lab. Vadim, incidentally, also has a background in redox biology. Uh, and uh, now I study uh, the basic biology of aging. Aging is a biological process. And um, you know the most useful tools we have, at least in my opinion, are these biomarkers of aging. And obviously they have incredible promise also in human clinical contexts. And so um, that's how I got involved in this space. Indeed. I mean, aging science has a great promise to transform medicine as we see it, and we will need biomarkers for that. Maybe you 
can briefly elaborate, it seems like a little of a, um, of a vague concept. What is a biomarker and why do we need them? Jesse, do you want to start with the biological side of it? Yeah, so um, as you quoted here, Camille, it's a very good definition. Biomarker is a biological feature that can indicate a process of interest. So just um, to jump right into why it's interesting for aging, of course, it's very hard to measure aging. You know, there, there's all kinds of conceptual considerations, differing opinions about what aging is in the first place. Um, you know, what features define it uh, and what, what should be targeted clinically. So, um, you know, the biomarkers are vague, especially in the aging space, I think simply because we, uh, we need to make, we need to cover a little more ground on the fundamental biology to decide what we want to measure. But we started um, our work with this first manuscript that was published a few weeks ago in Cell simply by trying to categorize these biomarkers because you say they sound vague. The reality is that they they are uh, perhaps not vague, but broad. So you have uh, many different categories of biomarkers from molecular biomarkers based on omics approaches to very clinical biomarkers like frailty indices. Um, but the point is that they allow you to have a quantitative metric uh, with which to try to assess the aging process, predict aging outcomes, um, and hopefully also guide treatments. Yeah, and uh, to add to that, maybe the only thing that uh, we agree, uh, all of us in the field uh, regarding the biomarkers, is that we, we really need them uh, because uh, we are designing clinical trials and we know we can't wait 10 years, 20 years, what's the actual outcome, but we need measures, reliable measures to predict these outcomes and to use uh, these biomarkers as surrogate endpoints. I know we are going to talk about them later, but that's the holy grail of biomarkers. Yeah, I totally agree. We need them to make clinical studies more efficient, but I feel like talking to people, there are sometimes misconceptions. And let me pose a bit of a controversial question. Do you think some biomarker at some point will be able to fully replace like a phase-free study as some people hope? Um, or what, what will they be able to deliver in practice? Yeah, I can uh, take a hit on that. But um, what we know is these biomarkers are just getting better and better. So we can't say for sure that they will uh, be in clinics. Uh, we see they are already in direct-to-consumer markets, uh, not saying anything good or, good or bad about it. But uh, we see that um, they are just becoming more accurate in predicting aging outcomes, more diverse aging outcomes, and uh, we are getting better resolution with these molecular biomarkers and also getting more and more deeper profiling with these multiomics. So we started a few decades ago by measuring single molecules like your cholesterol or your glucose, uh, but now we are measuring thousands of them in one experiment. So we know it's getting exponentially better and better. I don't know if it makes it, it makes it uh, to stage three clinical trial in five years or not, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, and I think you know there's also a practical reality, as Madi alluded to before, that mortality is just not an endpoint that's ever going to be in a phase three clinical trial. So in some ways, it's you know it's it's a bit of circular logic, right? Is it ever going to replace? an outcome in a phase three clinical trial, well, what outcome are you trying to replace, right? Um, and, 
there's a discussion to be had about it, is, is is mortality the best proxy for aging? But I, I think the I think that um, you know when we talk to clinicians, people who are dedicating you know, if not their whole career, you know, the majority of their recent career to this goal of, of building these biomarkers and thinking about which biomarkers should be innovated, how they should be measured, and uh, how they should be applied in clinical trials that are being planned, you know, the very first ones that may take place for aging, um, they're certainly very hopeful, uh, as we are, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And we can look at established biomarkers for other diseases to get like a rough idea. And I think LDL is always an interesting example. It's one of the best validated ones. And it is kind of predictive of success in phase three studies. But in the end, you still have to run the expensive studies. But you do save, I think, billions of dollars by pre-selecting drugs and interventions that might work. And I hope that's the future as well for aging biomarkers. Yeah, just, just to jump in with one other example that we identified in our first work. So in the US anyway, the FDA allows uh, reduction of blood pressure as a surrogate endpoint of stroke risk reduction. Um, so that, that's a real example of a surrogate endpoint that's in clinical trials. The other side of that is um, I, I tend to think more about these new biomarkers of cancer. So far, at this point, uh, the maybe the best biomarkers that we have for early detection of cancers are these omic epigenetic uh, plasma or liquid biopsy biomarkers. So typically when we talk about biomarkers in clinics, we, we tend to think about these single molecule biomarkers, LDH or uh, other um, small molecule biomarkers, uh, metabolomic biomarkers. But if you think about these epigenetic biomarkers in other context like cancer. Now uh, from big, uh, big uh, startups uh, like Grails uh, or uh, some other ones in uh, Asian markets, we have really good predictors of uh, early detection of cancers and they are doing really, uh, really nice. And uh, FDA is actually starting to look into them. So these are also good models for us uh, that uh, we can use omic biomarkers to better screen for aging related diseases before they happen. Right. Before we delve into omics, maybe let's talk about this example of blood pressure. So that's a, a good one. It reminds me of the four categories you had in the paper. So one is molecular, the other one would be physiological and the others were imaging, right? And another example that you, I think, gave was the six minute walk as a kind of functional biomarker. So um, that's also a very interesting one, I think. And it seems like um, having these functional biomarkers could go a long way for FDA to pro potentially approve treatments based on these. Uh, would you agree on that? Well, ultimately, it's not up to us. It's up to FDA. <laughs> but um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, full disclosure, I think uh, Mari and I both, are, our interests are mainly in the omics uh, space and our, our expertise arguably in that space. You know, we have many wonderful collaborators on this paper who think about the functional biomarkers. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a huge motivation to improve uh, functional aspects of aging because this is what most people deal with in, in, in the reality of aging, right? Or in the reality of seeing their loved ones age. Um, so, you know, these are very, uh, you know, th these are very good things that uh, are being pursued. Um, you know, one advantage of the omics, not to try to <laughs> sidestep your question, but one advantage of the omics is that, uh, at least in principle, we believe that they should 
predict these functional outcomes years before they actually manifest. Um, you know, one example that I hear invoked a lot by clinicians is uh, in terms of age-related sarcopenia. Once you lose muscle mass past a certain age, it's incredibly hard to regain it. Whereas um, if you can maintain it, then that predicts a better outcome in terms of aging. But the omics, the promise of the omics biomarkers and the more molecular side of things is that uh, hopefully you could predict those outcomes way before. And perhaps uh, that would be the best time to target them therapeutically. Of course, all of this remains to be tested. Right. Um, no problem there. I just like to take a broad view. So I always mention mm -hmm. all these different aspects. And when it comes to omics, it's really amazing. So epigenetics is kind of now the superstar biomarker. And what I don't fully understand is why did epigenetics and those clocks, why did they take off? And let's say transcriptomics and proteomics is still in its infancy. Do you have any ideas for that? I have ideas, but Mati can start because I, yeah, I, I can start why uh, they took off um, in general, these omic biomarkers, at least uh, from the information system perspectives um, that might be uh, that might be new uh, so if you consider uh, what we had before on the molecular level so these uh, very classic biomarker of telomeres and that's the length of uh, your uh, telomeres at the end of chromosomes and just from the informatics perspectives we can get up to 10 20 up to the number of chromosomes maximum the number of chromosomes observation per cell and even if you do single cell analysis that's a that's the maximum number of uh, uh, values and measurements you can get that's the informatic load uh, that you can observe but now think about epigenetic information from a single cell you we are now getting up to 30 million uh, measurements from a single cell and the scale of it you can just see how different they are What's, what's possible with this amount of information. That's, uh, I think, one reason they are becoming more and more popular. Yeah, and I, I would just add um, from more of a experimental, I guess, point of view, um, you know, one reason that the proteomics and uh, the metabolomic biomarkers are different anyway, not to say better or worse, but uh, different, and I think it ties into their development over time uh, in terms of biomarkers, is simply that the assays for the epigenetic clocks have been standardized for much longer. Um, you know, the coverage of the proteome that you get in mass spec from experiment to experiment, institution to institution, instrument to instrument is very different. But if I run uh, an epic array from Illumina here in the US and you run an epic array from Illumina in Singapore, from the same samples, in theory, we should get very similar results. So standardization is one issue. And then um, I think uh, in terms of transcriptomics, those have come along, but um, epigenetics, I think, just had a head start, essentially. Uh, and the transcriptomics are catching up. Instant, uh, interestingly, there was, um, there was an example of a molecular biomarker based on transcriptomics that predates Horvath's clock. But... Um, you know, the, uh, I think the standardization of the way that the DNA methylation is measured has been, has been a, huge, uh, a huge help to those. So it's not to say that anything is better or worse, just kind of more developed further along the line and people adopt what works for better or for worse. That's a very good point about the standardization. I think in clinical practice or to run large 
observational studies, etc. I think it's very, very important to have this kind of standardization. And well, before I ask my next question, maybe you can help me define a term. What is a clock? What is an aging clock? Either of you is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll let uh, Jesse uh, to tell you uh, the definition that's common. And I, I also add my, my thoughts on that because I stopped using the word clocks in my papers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I think uh, we often you know, arguably in kind of a lazy way, just interchange the word clock and biomarker of aging. Um, in many ways, clock is not a good term. And I think, you know, some of the, some of the innovators in the field who, uh, who have, you know, coined the term clock themselves have, have even, you know, criticized its use because it implies, um, you know, it implies one thing. It also restricts the definition a bit um, and it's also not informative. I mean, if you say to somebody, well, we're measuring an aging clock, you know, it's, <laughs> they have no idea what you're talking about. I remember even when I was, um, you know, when I was talking to people uh, in Vadim's lab, when I was considering joining, they were saying clock, 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 clock. And I just, for a little while until I looked into it, I had no idea. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so so we use the the terms interchangeably. Um, I agree with Madi that it's time uh, that we we should be serious now about switching in a systematic way to biomarker of aging, because it's simply a more correct term um, for what we mean. I mean, what, what does it mean to actually directly answer your question? It, it's, a, it's a molecular uh, algorithm or a mathematical algorithm, I should say, based on molecular data, which produces a measure um, that has some relation to biological age, either a direct prediction of biological age or a prediction of the rate of aging, uh, something like this. But biomarker of aging is by far the better term. So we should all start using that. Uh, by the way, we have a server uh, in the Gladyshev lab uh, in the computational side of it that's called clock server. And it goes back to more than 10 years and we're still uh, doing all the clock analysis. And even uh, one of our recent tool is called clock base uh, to keep the legacy. But, uh, and, and I understand because when they came out, uh, it was so accurate and it was surprisingly accurate uh, predictor of uh, the ticking of the cells, uh, mitotic clocks, the uh, replication clocks. And uh, we have one, um, clock a biomarker that they correlate with uh, cellular replication with 0.999 uh, correlation measure. That's like amazing for any biological event. So I understand why there's a tendency to call them clocks, but since we want to use them in um, clinical setting and translate uh, them to clinical practice, uh, we also need to follow the, the standard terminology in the, in the biomarker field. And uh, these biomarkers uh, in the context of diseases are now very commonly studied and understood. So uh, aging is not, uh, not very different than these other, um, other diseases. So as a whole, we can consider them biomarker, biomarkers of uh, aging associated outcomes. So I just believe that clock has become so widespread because it's like a really catchy term. So I suppose that's why it's so successful, but that's just speculation. Um, so be that as it may, I have a question. So something I was speculating about personally, can you define a so-called clock based on any sufficiently deep multidimensional data set that you measure like proteomics, transcriptomics, basically anything. I, that was the impression I got. 
because all these things should probably change with age. I was going to say, arguably, it doesn't even need to be that deep. I mean, there are some clocks based on three CPGs, seven CPGs. <laughs> you know, so yeah, you could you could you could build a, a clock, a biomarker based on anything that changes with age. Um, and you know, that gets into the kind of thorny but very interesting issue of um, you know causality in these biomarkers and whether what you're measuring lies on a pathway that is causal to aging or um, simply changes as a function of age. But anyway, uh, go ahead, Madi. Sorry, I interrupted you. I think that, that also nicely uh, relates to this paradox concept that we discuss in our paper. So mm -hmm. the more accurate you get in predicting the age itself, the uh, less uh, useful your clock becomes by definition in predicting aging outcomes uh, above uh, the age itself, right? If your clock or if your molecular measure tells you exactly how old you are, uh, it doesn't have any additional information besides your age or for telling you about your aging outcomes. So there is this uh, balance uh, that we don't want perfect uh, uh, clocks of age, but we want true uh, measures of your biological changes by age. Yeah, and it's probably worth backtracking just for a second to say that the, the benchmark, right, for these biomarkers is that they've got to do better than chronological age, because otherwise, you know, we can just look at people's passports or birth certificates. Yeah, like what you mentioned, Madi, there. So it's super counterintuitive. And that is because ultimately, we're not really interested in predicting age unless we're forensic biologists trying to solve crimes, right? We're kind of, well, at least in the clinic, we would be interested in age-related mortality risk. And I find it interesting that new clocks, so-called clocks, are rather trained on mortality risk than, than age. Yeah, that might be also a good time to, uh, to promote our biomarkers competition. So we are starting, uh, thanks to all the help from Jesse, he's, uh, he's taking the lead on this. Uh, we are starting uh, launching a competition to use molecular data to predict uh, age-related outcomes, starting with predicting the age itself, because uh, regardless, it's important for us to know what aspects of this molecular data are just predictors of age and correlates of age without having any uh, information about aging outcomes. So it will be a multi-phased um, prediction competition with uh, a good uh, uh, prize and that uh, the first phase would be actually to predict the age from uh, molecular data going on to predicting uh, time to death mortality and other age-related outcomes well what's the prize is the question do we get a lamborghini or <laughs> uh, maybe i can do <laughs> uh, the spoiler alert is uh, i think uh, it's already uh, the pool uh, the prize pool is already six digits if i'm if i'm uh, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, Jesse can correct me. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So money. <laughs> In US dollar, yeah. <laughs> so more than just a poster award and like a nice point on your CV. So there's actual money in it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, we plan to make it an annual, uh, similar to other fields, uh, the protein structure competition to, to motivate the field uh, to have a uh, standard way to compare their biomarkers. Okay, maybe that's a stupid question because I don't understand how prizes work. So the winner can spend the money however they want. And who would that be like, if it's a team or a PI of a lab, uh, how does it actually work? 
Do you have? Do yeah, you know? those are yeah, those are the other side of it that uh, we've been working with um, our sponsors uh, to find the best model. I want to uh, shout out to one of our uh, main fiscal sponsors, Methuselah Foundations, and they have a, a very extensive experience running a million dollars uh, prize with uh, NASA and other entities, and um, so we let them uh, we let them uh, do what they are good at. Uh, hosting competitions with prizes. Yeah, and of course, the motivation for us as scientists is that we we get better models, right, for the biomarkers. So everybody everybody benefits. Yeah, prizes are a really good idea. I think that's how we got AlphaFold, and I think other things as well, like in those competitions. Okay, so I want to take a step back just briefly to these, this idea about the multidimensional data set. So maybe I'm misremembering. So I, I still remember the times going to conferences, hearing about the Mark H cohort, etc. And I always got the impression like the results were slightly disappointing because everyone was focusing on just a single universal marker and then they got weak correlations. But once people started combining at least a couple of them, the things got more accurate. Does this add up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we did a review on uh, the result of Mark H um, with the help of Andrew Meyer from your uh, uh, from Singapore uh, and um, other folks uh, who were involved. Um, so I completely agree with you. And um, we think, uh, uh, among others, that the reason that these multi-dimensional or multi-modality uh, models um, are doing better is because aging itself is a very um, is, a, is a system event it's not just uh, related to one tissue or one organ system or one uh, has not manifested that in one uh, type of uh, molecular changes and uh, to understand it to understand it uh, holistically we need all these diverse uh, omics uh, or other type of uh, measurements. So I, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, this multi-omics uh, model outperform classic aging outcome, aging uh, aging biomarkers. Yeah. yeah, and this is likely the reason that more and more cohort studies and biobanks are just adding to their supply of omics data because um, that's a huge unmet need right now as well. Just the, the need for data to evaluate these questions. Does mul multiple modalities do better than one? Right. I'm wondering though, so before Jesse, you mentioned that you can construct, I think relatively accurate epigenetic clocks with few markers. So would this kind of support the idea that epigenetics is somehow really good or even superior to some other markers that you can like construct just using so few inputs, a decent clock? Uh, well, you know, Mati can comment on this too, because he's a super duper epigenetic expert. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to compare because again, just the, the epigenetic biomarkers have had such a head start and what they can do is amazing, I would say, but is it better than any other data modality? Again, I'm not entirely sure. You could, uh, you could make an argument that a transcriptomic or proteomic biomarker with a similar predictive accuracy as the best epigenetic clocks right now would automatically uh, be more useful because the data that you can get from the transcriptome and the proteome are arguably more actionable, right? We understand what it means when a transcript is present at a particular level or a protein is present at a particular level. 
And you know, one of the one of the things that epigenetics leaves to be desired, simply based on our you know lack of concrete understanding about the uh, you know the interplay of epigenetics and, and downstream things like transcriptomics and proteomics is that we don't necessarily know what we could act on based on epigenetic results. Yeah, and uh, to add to that, uh, we, we actually invited uh, the same group of uh, co-authors. Uh, we, we call them the Roadmap Work Group uh, who put together the cell paper uh, to and and we write to, we wrote together another paper just submitted to uh, another top journal uh, with the help of uh, Luigi Ferrucci, Steve Horvath, and other uh, leaders in the field. And the whole goal of that paper is uh, can we compare different omic biomarkers, the existing ones, and the ones that have been uh, validated on cross-population studies. So they've been developed using uh, data from one population and been tested. Um, on another population and see if we can uh, compare and benchmark them to see which one does better. And the surprise was uh, uh, using any omic, there are really good biomarkers uh, that are reported to uh, predict uh, aging outcomes with, with very decent accuracies. And I was personally surprised uh, seeing metabolomic biomarkers reporting really, right, uh, really, really high hazard ratios. So the goal for us uh, was to compile all this information and let's see if we can replicate the results, if we can um, uh, repeat the same accuracy, the same high accuracy in uh, other population. And the idea, the, the goal would be to use a, a large collection of these populations and compare a large collection of these biomarkers in a standard way. That's, that's the path we put uh, forward. But uh, my thoughts on why epigenetics uh, right now is, um, is the popular one and the one that a lot of people are considering is uh, first of all is the resolution of uh, the measurement. We just got better and better in uh, measuring them with higher resolution using different assays. Um, it's still uh, a long way to go, but the reason with a few CPGs you are getting a really high uh, at least predictor of age is that uh, they are normalized uh, in a way. And uh, for other modalities, we are still a bit behind. And uh, the other hypothesis is that a lot of, uh, a lot of effects that you see in transcriptomics uh, or uh, even proteomics uh, to some extent are downstream of epigenetics changes. And if uh, there is a change in transcriptomes, uh, it's also likely that's reflected in epigenome, at least the long-term effects that's related to age. But the downside is, uh, for shorter clinical trial that you might uh, change something that's not uh, reflecting or that's not affecting the epigenome because these are also the memories of the cells, right? So it, it doesn't, uh, a lot of uh, these regions, a lot of these epigenetic uh, sites don't change on a day, daily basis. They are more robust. So that's the downside for shorter term experiments that you might not see the effect on epigenome. So I would say every one of them has a, uh, their own unique advantages. Yeah, you raise a lot of interesting points and I'm definitely looking to the comparative work to have the same biomarkers, um, sorry, different biomarkers tested in the same cohort and then to see how they correlate, whether they have additive value in predicting outcomes, of course, or whether they're redundant. That's super exciting. And 
Another thing, yeah. So Jesse mentioned that the epigenetics are very hard to interpret um, because we don't necessarily know what what is happening downstream of these changes. And I think another issue that has recently come up, right, is that even if something changes with age, we don't know whether it is adaptive or harmful with age. Yes. So that's one thing. And maybe I can briefly, before Madi, you have to go mention why I was so excited about the functional biomarkers. So um, what I really like about them is that you could, in principle, have a study where you can actually measure rejuvenation if you had something that can do it in real time, right? If you had a six-minute walk and you could improve it, then that would be definitely amazing. And I guess the FDA would also look kindly on that kind of outcome. So that, that's kind of ironic that it seems rejuvenation would be easier to measure than a slowing of aging, don't you think? I'm not sure if I'm making sense here. Maybe... That makes sense. It's a very interesting question. It depends. Yeah, it depends on how you define uh, rejuvenation. And we have some of those discussions in our in our uh, in our paper. But um, you know, maybe one quick point here is um, the, the distinction between the causes and consequences of aging. And we are uh, in a basic research biology lab. We tend to uh, spend more time thinking about molecular causes of uh, what you see and uh, the walking speed and those other functional uh, measurements, we see them as manifestation of these cellular and molecular causes of aging. So that's why we have been focusing more on understanding these, uh, the biology of aging at the molecular and cellular level. Because if you really think deeply about why old people tend to walk slower, you get to the bottom of it at the at the myocytes, at the cell, cells that uh, are the core of muscle cells, right? Uh, muscle tissues. And for us, uh, uh, so you, you might be able to give some uh, therapeutic to someone and help them to walk faster, or uh, we even have this example of wearing glasses. And that's not, uh, we, don't, we don't consider it as a true rejuvenation of uh, the organ. It's, um, it's enhancing the function of it, but uh, uh, in, in biology, uh, in, in biology of aging that we do, we are uh, thinking more about the, the causes, the cellular and molecular causes of this manifestation. Yeah, but I would just say this is a really, really good example, this question and Madi's response, um, and just the thoughts that it inspires. This is a really good example of why we form the consortium and why we're so lucky to have such a diverse group of contributors. Because as Madi said, we're, we're much more on the basic research side of things, but we benefit hugely from having people like uh, Dr. Andrea Meyer, you know, who are in the clinic dealing with patients and thinking about things from a very different, um, but you know, equally important perspective. Uh, and so being able to reconcile these two kind of sides <clears throat> or at least, you know, finding the overlaps and, and considering all, all sides of it is uh, very important and something we're able to do now with the consortium. Yes, I completely agree with that. We learned uh, a lot uh, during this uh, past year talking to a lot of clinicians and uh, people who are talking to FDA and doing the real uh, translation. Uh, this has been really fun. Um, I'm sure we can talk hours about this. Have another meeting to catch up, but hopefully we can follow up on this soon. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Mari. See you next time. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Bye. So one reason why I was mentioning rejuvenation was that I um, recently did a podcast and I was interviewing a colleague who was working, studying the effects of rapamycin in animals and in mice specifically. And he pointed out that it seemed that the rapamycin improved aging-related outcomes, phenotypes, but it did so both in young and old mice. And he did not see that the delta between um, treated and untreated mice would increase with age. So to me, the interpretation was that potentially there was some rejuvenation going on. I found this just very interesting. It also highlights the importance of doing longitudinal analysis. What do you think? Well, first of all, I, I agree entirely uh, with the point about longitudinal analysis. It's always struck me as very odd that we have like this weird <laughs> kind of lack of longitudinal studies in aging. Um, you know, at least compared to, to cross cohort levels. And of course, resources are limited. People have to make decisions. I, I you know, I understand all of that, but I, I think that, yeah, longitudinal study is very, very important um, because they allow you to answer questions uh, as you posed in this question and earlier about the difference between slowing aging and rejuvenation. Um, and of course, you know, definitions matter here. So I, I would define, you know, rejuvenation as a reduction in the biological age uh, past the baseline that you would expect. So in other words, if my biological age today is 32, if I was rejuvenated, then my biological age should be under 32, right? Um, and uh, so longitudinal studies allow you to ask these questions. And one of the things we discussed in the cell paper actually was this, even at the biomarker level, not, not even thinking about, you know, uh, uh, treating, targeting aging or uh, translation, but at the biomarker level, actually, this is an important conceptual consideration because we have biomarkers that claim to predict biological age, which is a state. And then we have biomarkers that claim to measure the rate of aging, uh, which is a rate, right? And these are two very fundamentally different things. Um, and there are even disagreements about whether uh, one is better to measure than the other. I mean, one of the nice things, at least in terms of epigenetics, is that you can simultaneously do both uh, these days from the same, uh, you know, starting data. Um, so that's very nice. And I think, you know, data will come uh, out that will allow us to answer these questions, um, you know, more thoroughly. Uh, the differences where you see similarities and then divergences between the biological age and the rate of aging. But yeah, we I think we need more we need more longitudinal data really to answer these questions really thoroughly because as it is you know we have these situations now where we have a cross sectional analysis at young we have a cross sectional analysis at old and people can make assumptions to try to connect the two but at the end of the day um, you know to really convince somebody you need the actual data. Talking about longitudinal, actually. I noticed that even researchers often get the definition wrong between longitudinal and cross-sectional. Can you briefly, again, just remind everyone what longitudinal means in practice? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, there, there's even, um, there's even a, a nuance that we had to clarify uh, in our second paper. So cross-sectional, um, that's easier, so we can start there. That just means you take a group of people of different ages, different sexes, different ethnic backgrounds, et cetera, and you do a single measurement, single assessment, and that's it. That's your whole study. That's your whole data set. 
longitudinal simply means that you follow the same group of people or animals or whatever the case may be over time. Um, and you can do this in one of uh, two ways. I mean, probably more than two, but there, there's a basic distinction that can be made. So one way is that at time point one, you collect a biological sample and your longitudinal follow-up can then be simply a health outcome. So you can track, the, uh, track when the people in your cohort die to predict mortality risk. Um, and so that would be considered longitudinal because you have taken the sample in the past and done a prospective analysis. Um, the, uh, the other option, of course, is to do repeated measurements over time. So you take a, a sample at time point one, and then maybe five years later or something, you take a second sample and, and on and on. So yeah, the, the difference is that in cross-sectional analysis, you're primarily looking at a snapshot in time. In longitudinal analysis, you're following people over time. And without getting into details, there are some potential extremely complex biases that this introduces. That's why we prefer longitudinal when we can get it. Yeah, I think, you know, from a, from a, what I'm trying to say is that there, there are people working on very elegant ways to try to sidestep some of the issues with cross-sectional data and learning about more dynamic features that you can still derive from a cross-sectional cohort. So that work, I think, will be very interesting to see how it develops. But yeah, from a more um, simple-minded point of view, and I consider myself a pretty simple-minded scientist, yeah, you need the longitudinal data <laughs> to understand how things change over time, simply because it's just more direct evidence. I like the keyword dynamic here because that was my next point. So you could probably study something like recovery after a stress if you have longitudinal measurements. And this seems like such an important thing to study because aging is almost defined by an inability, by a decrease in resilience, right? Yeah, in some ways, certainly. And, um, you know, there uh, we've done studies and other people in the field have done studies looking at this exact question uh, using various biomarkers. And so there's, I think, a huge amount to be gained from the dynamics. Um, I, I believe this... Uh, very personally, I have a vested interest in this idea based on our previous work. But I, I really think it, it's true that, you know, aging is a continuous process, right? And so, uh, again, thinking about it from the simplest point of view, if you want to study a continuous process, you should do it longitudinally over time. And, and again, not it, it's not to criticize anybody. It's very hard to do, especially with humans. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard enough to convince people to come to a clinical study even once, <laughs> much less over time. But there's a huge amount to be learned, I think, from, from longitudinal analyses and, and particularly longitudinal analyses that are very highly time resolved. And in fact, it even, um, from the biomarker perspective, I would argue it's, it's even more critical to understand these features because if the idea is that you would do, um, you would do a, a clinical trial where you're testing a, a, an intervention for longevity and the primary readout is a biomarker, uh, if half of your cohort is undergoing something that drives the biomarker higher at a transient, uh, in a transient manner, you could be fooled by that single time point, right? Um, so I think understanding these dynamics is also really critically important to interpretation of the biomarker results. Uh, and, and I think there's also a huge amount to learn from a more basic uh, point of view as well from those dynamics. But as you say, it's also very difficult. Although mm -hmm. 
I think in some ways it's getting easier, at least if you look at these digital markers that you can follow with Fitbits and other devices. Um, do, you, do you find them promising? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, so first of all, I should say that uh, I, I um, I'm lamenting the lack of longitudinal studies, but there are some very, very elegant and useful examples. I think one we really need to give credit to is the Dunedin study, out of uh, New Zealand. There was a biomarker made based on this study called Dunedin Pace, um, and, and the study is just very elegant. I mean, I don't think you can really say enough nice things about it. They have a cohort of people who were all born in the same year. They've been following them for years and years. They do, you know, extremely detailed analyses. The people come to their clinic for like a whole day and are subjected to a battery of all kinds of tests. Um, they have biological samples taken. It's a very, very elegant study led by uh, Terry Moffat. And of course, Dunedin Pace was built by Dan Belsky. Um, and in terms of the digital biomarkers, yes, I think that there's a huge amount of promise. So I don't think Mani mentioned it, but uh, one of the labs he's associated with at Stanford is Mike Snyder's lab. And uh, Mike Snyder has been a real uh, innovator in this space. Um, if you've ever seen him wear a talk, he'll like hold up his wrists and show that he's wearing like six different kinds of Fitbits and Apple watches and all kinds of things. So yeah, I mean, people are people are wearing these things, and so there's a huge amount of data out there, a huge amount of things to learn. Um, and in terms of biomarkers, I think it'll be really interesting. So I think one of the more interesting ones I think that they've built and published already was a was a predictor of COVID based on I think heart rate variability from the wearables. So you can you can already see that examples are coming out, and I, I think that you know more and more these will um, these will continue to develop. Yeah, coincidentally, I was actually watching his appearance on the NUS webinar last night. So mm -hmm. it was still in my mind fresh. And I think it's also a good moment to mention that the NUS webinar by Andrea Meyer and Brian Kennedy is also an amazing resource. They do great interviews and we're helping with them here at NUS where I work. And well, hopefully we will see you one day as well on the webinar. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I hope so, <laughs> sometime in October or November. Right. Okay, so just a couple of questions before we wrap it up. So um, we briefly mentioned perhaps that it's hard to validate biomarkers. And what I find interesting, so I talked about Mendelian randomization almost every episode recently. Mm -hmm. I was thinking you could perform Mendelian randomization to see how, let's say, SNPs or genetic changes drive changes in biomarkers, and then whether these genetically proxied changes also associate with mortality. Do you know if anyone is working going in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. So there's um there's a graduate student researcher in the Gladyshev lab. His name is Kijun Ying, Y I N G, and he has a preprint out. Um, that's uh, it's been out for a little while now, and he's working on uh, revising it for publication. And he's done exactly what you what you propose. He's used Mendelian randomization to identify uh, to identify sites that are associated with uh, particular epigenetic biomarkers of aging. And so based on this method, what he's able to do is to uh, separate out those sites, which based on the Mendelian randomization uh, data are causal to the aging process and those which are more adaptive or neutral. And actually he can also build separate biomarkers 
uh, which separate out these different sites. And so that's a, I think, really interesting and promising uh, direction. You know, Madi also has um, a number of these analyses that are more biologically informed. Um, you know, again, it goes back to this uh, challenge of interpreting or not interpreting per se, but interpretability of the epigenetic biomarkers. Um, and so uh, this is a very hot area, I think, right now of research. A lot of people are working on it because, um, you know, we want to increase our understanding of what drives the biomarkers and ultimately what drives aging. That is indeed an important question. And I'm wondering, can I get your perspective? Where is the field headed? What else is currently hot and important? Well, uh, in terms of biomarkers, um, I would say that, you know, our big next step uh, would be systematic validation. Um, so we are actually with the consortium trying to build tools that we will make available to the community to be able to do just this. So there's a huge, huge long road to, uh, to uh, sorry, acceptance of these biomarkers by regulatory authorities uh, for clinical trials. But the the key next step that we need is validation and validation in particular across different cohorts. And these cohort data are very, very precious resources. And uh, oftentimes there are barriers to accessing them for researchers. And you know, some of the times this is meant uh, or this arises because there are concerns about patient privacy, which of course is very important. Uh, and that has to be maintained. Sometimes there are institutional regulations or laws when it's you know an international collaboration. Um, so there are many barriers that that make data sharing uh, harder than it should be from a scientific point of view. And so we're trying to build tools right now that are that will enable people to very quickly validate novel biomarkers um, across many different cohorts. And conversely, we also want to be able to allow people to very rapidly apply a suite of biomarkers to their own cohort data, if they happen to have that. So this tool is in development right now. Um, you can see a, a very early kind of beta version of it if you search for ClockBase. So ClockBase was also uh, created by Albert Ying, who I just mentioned before in terms of the causal clocks. And what Albert did as a model for this system was that he downloaded all of the data from the gene expression omnibus and he put it on the server and he coded all of, uh, or not all, but a, a, you know, a large number of epigenetic biomarkers and actually also transcriptomic biomarkers. And so what you can do is that if you have a particular geo data set that you're interested in, you only, you simply need to just search by the identifier and uh, you know, with like three clicks of the mouse, you can calculate all of the biomarkers that are programmed into uh, ClockBase. And so in this expanded tool, the idea is that we would, um, we would simply increase the number of data sets, increase the number of biomarkers, and give people this tool to uh, try to enable them to do validation in a much easier way than what's currently available. Yeah, ClockBase is definitely an interesting project. I need to remember to later put the link in the show notes so mm -hmm. everyone can play around with it. Yeah. So basically, you could look at your favorite intervention and whether it affects epigenetic clocks. Is this something you could do with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, so if you, you know, you can, you can look at data sets that are in geo already. Um, and of course, you know, because everybody, at least in the US, um, if you're funded by NIH, you're required to deposit data in public repositories. Many people use geo for this. So there are a huge amount of data resources that are simply present in geo. And so you can go to ClockBase and search any of these and you know, providing that the, the data is compatible with the biomarkers, whether they're epigenetic biomarkers or transcriptomic biomarkers. Again, you, you just click, click, click and calculate these things. Uh, and so it's, it's very easy to be able to do that uh, with those data. You can also, if you have your own data set, uh, you can upload that to the server and in the same way, same easy way, calculate all of these biomarkers very simply. So this is the basic idea of this expanded tool that we're building, which we call BioLearn. And um, hopefully that will be released around the time of the symposium in December. All right. I also hope um, your project goes well to improve data sharing and such things, because we're all struggling with this, getting access to cohorts, getting access to data. Um, there's a lot of red tape, and I hope in the future at some point this will change a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, yeah. We again, I, I, we have to, we have to really acknowledge the consortium members. You know, we're very lucky because a lot of, a lot of the uh, the leaders in these cohort studies are have been thinking about this for a long time, and you know, there there are models out there for how you can do things like federated learning. Um, and so we benefit hugely from having these people on the team. And, and hopefully what we can do is kind of just synergize everything together and produce something that will be really useful for the field. That's the hope. All right. Maybe I can ask one last question. I usually like to ask this um, to epigenetic experts. So it would have been nice to also have Madi here. Basically, um, it's like that. So looking at epigenetic clocks, sometimes I feel like they're almost too dynamic. Like they respond to a lot of stressors. They're very variable intraday or between like measurements. Do you think there's some real biology here? Do you really get younger if you are older, if you don't, don't sleep one whole night? Or how does this? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, again, everything goes back to what is causal to aging and more tests are needed. My opinion is that is that yes, some of these, these interventions do indeed uh, accelerate aging and some do it in a transient way. And uh, the reason I believe this is because we can, uh, we can characterize these interventions beyond the epigenetic level. Um, so if, you know, we have examples of interventions that we've characterized at the epigenetic level, the transcriptomic level, and the metabolomic level. And in all of these cases, we get the same answer that age is transiently accelerated, biological age is transiently accelerated as read out by these biomarkers. So in my mind, the simplest interpretation of these data is that biological age is truly changing in these models. And so um, of course, many people don't agree with this and more tests are always needed to validate uh, novel kind of ideas like this in science. But um, I think that uh, we have in aging kind of this standard where uh, <laughs> people, people have very strong ideas about what aging is and what aging isn't. And, and it's easy to kind of write off things that 
we would not consider aging like sleep deprivation, as you mentioned. But if biological age is a more dynamic parameter than chronological age, and I would argue that uh, nothing would stop it from being, um, you know, no, nothing, nothing dictates, I think, that biological age should exactly mimic chronological age. If it did, then, you know, we should, we should stop the biomarkers, just use the, use the forensic biomarkers to predict chronological age that are really good. But of course, you know, again, more validation, of course, is needed uh, to really get to the bottom of these things. But as you said, um, what's the next big thing for aging? You know, I really think that causality, establishing what is causal to aging, that's one of the biggest questions, if not the biggest one out there. And so we, we continue to try to work towards that. And good luck with that. Causality and validation are indeed one of the two key challenges. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think it was, it was great talking to you. I think we covered a lot of ground. We were actually for once quite quick. Great. Yeah, if I could just plug at the if I could just plug at the end, we have our uh, we have our symposium, our first symposium coming up on December fourth at the Buck Institute. Um, you can find information about that and information about our other projects at our website, which is agingconsortium.org. Uh, so please check that out. Please attend the symposium if you can. Um, and you know we we need we need many people. Uh, to join us to make these things work. It's not the type of thing that any one person or one research group can do. So we're always looking for collaborators and contributors. And so if anybody's interested, they should really feel free to reach out. You can also do that through the website. Looking forward to that. Thank you. All right. That was a great podcast. To give a brief recap, we all agreed that omics markers are great. So the beautiful thing about omics markers is that in principle, they could predict changes in functional outcomes or functional biomarkers years before these happen. That's what makes them really cool. We also discussed why epigenetics is so strong currently and came to a potentially very boring conclusion, which is that it's about standardization and that epigenetics simply had a head start. Standardization is really essential for clinical studies, so maybe the other markers will also get there eventually. I also challenged our guests to mind read how the FDA will think about biomarkers down the line, which ones may replace hard outcomes, and we also talked about potential rejuvenation and whether it will be easier to detect rejuvenation using biomarkers rather than detecting slowing of aging. There's one big topic I wanted to address during the podcast but forgot, and it was the question whether we need to understand aging to slow it or to reverse it. Because many diseases can be cured, or at least almost cured, without us having anything approaching a complete understanding of the disease. This is particularly true in some instances for cancers like testicular cancer, anal cancer, some childhood leukemias, just to give some examples that come to my mind. So that's a question for another podcast. Finally, we also talked about the difference between cross-sectional and longitudinal studies in this podcast, and I mentioned how researchers often mix up these terms. And ironically, I also mixed them up myself in this podcast. Well, maybe not mix up, but I did use them in a sloppy way. So I was talking about a mouse study by the German researcher Dan Enninger. In this study, he finds that rapamycin does not improve aging-related phenotypes over time. Instead, it improves them even in young mice. He reconstructs this longitudinal trajectory, so to say, still using cross-sectional data, but in contrast to most other mouse studies, his takes measurements at two time points for both drug and control. 
whereas many studies just test the drug at one time point, which is in old mice, including the control where young mice were treated with the drug. So the data is still determined from different cohorts of mice that are sacrificed, so the study remains cross-sectional. Personally, I like to call this kind of design quasi-longitudinal, but that is just me. So that was just one of the things I wanted to mention at the end. Thanks for listening and hope to see you in future podcasts.